Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Fridays are the brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio. And we need someone who is bright and a conversationalist. And she's not just that, but she's also a great writer. She's got a book coming out that we're going to talk about. She she can do everything. And she will tell you that. <laughs> Her name is Lorraine Sommerfeld. She joins you now. Lorraine, how are you today? Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> She'll tell you. <laughs> I'm just teasing. You. I'm good. But you can do everything. You write. You 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 do a little bit of everything. And That's it. and <laughs> and this week, you know what you did this week? You wrote something uh, as you often do. That I read it and I thought, you know, she tapped into something here. Your your column in the la- a few days ago. We were in the neighborhood. Thought we'd drop by. This was in the spec, and uh, it's this basically the story of how we used to. How we used to do things where you would just be sitting at home and the doorbell would ring and uh, yeah, people would be at your front door and there were kind of expectations that you would open the door and be sociable. It, the world has changed, Lorraine. Well, do you remember it would be, we've got company and everyone would lose their minds like before cell phones and back, back when everyone was still going on drives, like Sunday drives and get excited. You knock on my door now, I won't even open it. But back then, it was like the highlight of the week. Well, and and look, I wasn't a parent uh, or an, even an adult at the time when this was really kind of the thing. I was in my kid phase, but we would ride your bike to your friend's house and drop the bike on the sidewalk in front. And that's, you didn't text to say, are you home? You didn't even necessarily call to say, are you home? You just showed up to play. You just drove around or rode around till you found somebody home. <laughs> And you could always tell who was home because their pile of bicycles outside on the sidewalk in front of the house. That was the, <laughs> that was the flashing red light. Look for the pile of sight of bicycles and you know, people are there Signals. and they can't, you know, as you say, you didn't open the door. You can't hide. If your bicycle is parked outside the house, you know, they're inside. Yeah. Oh yeah. I remember my dad would get all grumpy because he'd have something he was doing, but mom would just fake it. She would just smile and start putting coffee or tea on and we all thought okay that's what you're supposed to do and my dad would be scowling in the corner if there's something he'd rather be doing (laughs) i mean clearly the the piece you wrote is like and what you just said i'm not going to answer the door now but honestly at the time was that not a better scenario than where we are right now i don't want to do the whole you know it was always better in the past but to me that it seems like it's a much more sociable pleasant friendly world that's the right word. I think we were better at being social because sometimes we had to be pushed outside our comfort zone. And I'm an introvert. I don't really like lots of people at all. But I think back then it kind of, it for the kids, especially your manners had to come out, like you had mm-hmm. to do things and it wasn't always things that you would have chosen to do. And that's, that's some pretty good home training, frankly, like th- those are things that are okay to learn how to do. And, you know, to get along with other people. So yeah, that was good. And you also find out who your parents secretly don't like, which was always a powerful piece of information. (laughs) Well, yeah. And and the worst part, and this didn't happen all that often, thankfully, although, you know, I'm not going to pretend like I didn't get in trouble. Um, You know, in school, they almost named the detention as the Scott Radley Memorial after school activity. But, (laughs) um, but you also, there were people, there were adults on the street that you knew, didn't necessarily love your behavior. And if they came over, it's like, oh, oh, I hope they don't say anything. Well, I, I have a fun story. You'll you will really like this one. Jimmy Taddy used to live two doors away from me oh, when I was yeah. growing up. Yep. And he's he was a handful of years older than I was. And there's two Taddy boys. And my father caught them breaking our Christmas lights one year. Remember how you put the lights out front on the shrubs? And he took them by the ear, both of them, and went back to Joe, their dad. And they got in big trouble. And I saw Jim Taddy years ago on CH. And I asked him, I go, do you remember when you broke our Christmas lights? Yeah. it's And, and, and these now, days, if a neighbor grabs your kids, yes. <laughs> you couldn't do that. Yeah, I know. And <laughs> I... I Bending your kids right to break lights. <laughs> I remember Mr. Thompson, who lived across the street from us, some kid, I can't remember which one, but some kid in our neighborhood was basically, you know, giving his kid grief or bullying his kid or something. And Mr. Thompson had the kid pinned on the front grass, the bully. And it's like today, if you're the parent of some other kid and you discipline someone else's kid, you're going to jail. 
But then if you, oh, yeah. the thing oh, was, but if you were the kid and you went home and you said, Mr. Thompson beat me up, you know what your parent would have said probably at the time? Well, you probably deserved it. What did you do? It's a totally different world. Exactly. I was just going to say, that's the difference is, you know, it, it's good that someone else, you know, they can't, you don't lay a hand on kids. Like you just don't. And no. disciplining someone else's kid is a lost leader. It's not going to work. But the difference is that when we were in trouble, the trouble started here. Like, and now, like I said, you know, modern day, Mr. Taddy would have told my father that the kids have a right to break Christmas lights if they want to. <laughs> right. Yeah. They're expressing themselves. So everyone's got rolling. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I lived my, look, my dad was, was not by the remotest of stretch by no definition was my dad abusive in any way, shape or form. I mean, I, I got spanked a few times. Everybody did, but it was not in a, you know, it was, it wasn't in any kind of thing that was outside the boundaries of what anyone else did. And yet at the same time, I knew darn well that if I had ever been brought home by the police, for example, I, I mean, I, I would never have left the house again. I would have been on lockdown for, and there was no way that if a police officer, for example, or even a neighbor brought me home and said, Scott was doing this, no way my dad's going to go, he's innocent, leave him alone. No, 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 no. My life would have been over. <laughs> well, I told my kids when they were young, I said, if, if the police bring you home, I said, it better have been your idea. <laughs> because if my kids followed an idiot into trouble, that, but I did a ride along with the OPP one time and she was amazing. And we were out in all, all on the QEW and Niagara and stuff. And then she took me back to the OPP detachment here at near Joseph Brown hospital. And she showed me the two cells and they're lovely. I went in and I said, well, I said, if my kids get brought here, they're staying here for the night. <laughs> and she goes, I wish more parents would do that. Like, let them, yeah. which may sound a little harsh but i told them better have been your idea and i'm not coming to bail you out tonight like if i'm in bed forget it but, but back to you know back to the call back to the call about people just showing up at the house i mean not just for bad things just because hey i'm in the neighborhood yeah. and you know i as i say i get when i read your piece and it really sort of reminded me of that time I get that there was pressure on the person whose house's door was being rung that you better have coffee made or you better have something to pull out to serve. But it it just, it does seem so much more friendly and social and neighborly and community and everything else than we do now. It just does. Well, yeah, I think good things can come in unexpected places. And I say that as someone who is a bit of a clutter freak and I don't love people. I like to plan my spontaneity is how I frame it. Um, but no, it's the best evenings are sometimes the ones that you don't know are going to happen. And, you know, you tend, you find old friends and you start talking and nothing else really matters. So I think we have to realize that no one's coming here to grade how clean your house is. Exactly. Or you have a pound cake on the counter. Exactly. <laughs> uh, the, the piece is called, We Were in the Neighborhood, Thought We'd Drop By. You can find it online at thespec.com. All right, uh, Lorraine, I wanted to talk about this, that we have heard um, over the, we, well, we all followed the thing with the Titanic submersible a few weeks ago. And we've heard now in more recent days, numbers that have come out about how much it will have cost for the rescue effort. And we're hearing numbers anywhere from $3 million to $6.5 million and maybe more that was spent to try to find and then rescue this submersible that went down this ocean's gate, uh, Titan that went down to Titanic or was supposed to go down to Titanic. If somebody does something that requires them to be rescued, either on a small or large scale, this obviously being the large scale, who should pay for that? Should it automatically be the people who did something that then required the saving or should we say, no, that's it's society. That's what we do. I think we have to consider the social benefits to not acting that way, but I'm torn on this because I know people, sorry, I know of people who go backcountry skiing or they take their snowmobiles trying to trigger avalanches. Um, it's a sport Sounds that smart. happens in different parts of the U.S. and Canada. Oh, yeah. And part in some places, I think France, I'm not sure, you have to put a deposit down. If you're going to do that, like if you're going to go you know, high country and do stupid stuff, you have to put down like a $25,000 retainer for us to come and dig you out sort of thing. Um, I, I don't want to say to people that parts of the world are off limits to you, 
but I am a fan of personal responsibility and this submersible thing. The fact that this it could even go out there on boats the size of the boats that had to take it out there. How does this business person manage to function this way? And how do these people with all this money to go and do it not be asking themselves this very question? Like to me, this I'm a worst case scenario person, I admit it. But start start at the worst case and work your way back. How are you even allowed to be out there and have so many people aware that you're doing this and no one's bothered to ask what happens if it goes wrong? I, I don't know. I that's baffling to me. Yeah, it's it it almost seems in a case like this that you know you could have it where you've it's what was it, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to do this, but you've got to put down an yeah. extra two hundred that you'll get back when you get to the yeah. surface. But if you don't come back, but even then, even if they had paid that, it would still only have been a third of the money that it would have cost, or less, or a fourth of the money that would have covered this. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have covered the entire cost of the rescue mission. I the the problem with this, Lorraine, and, and why it becomes so tricky, and I agree with you, is okay, this is the most obvious and egregious example. But at what point, okay, so so you say you got to do it here, but what if it's a parachuting situation? which is less, or as you say, backwoods skiing, or yeah. what if you're just hiking in a place that's a, not a trail or like where, where is the line then that you say, well, okay, we're willing to jump in here, but not here. And that's, that's the problem with this. If you're part of a organization that goes and does this, that's one way to kind of calibrate it and keep tags on stuff. If it's someone who goes off trail hiking, there's a little girl in BC that was lost for 50 hours. Thank goodness she is alive and knew how to keep herself alive. So obviously you take all the resources to go and find people that did this, you know, that they've wandered off the trail or, you know, have their hot air balloon got blown off course by, right. you know, freak wind or whatever it is. But people that put themselves at this risk at great cost on purpose, do you not think that if you have to take out an insurance policy of a quarter million to match your quarter million, maybe it will give you pause? Maybe you will think a little bit or ask more questions of the person who's putting you in this spot? So I, I don't think we could compare this to lost hikers um, because I, I would pull out everything. There's people trained to do this. And I've been hearing that about this submersible. People trying to justify the cost to all the countries involved saying, well, they learned about a lot of valuable lessons by going through this drill, basically. And they do drills all the time. And I kind of signed up for that a little bit. It's like, okay, they learn things from it, which could benefit other people. But it kind of scratches at me that these very, very rich people are letting other countries pay for this. It, yeah, yeah it and, bugs me. <laughs> and and it like it it really, as I, you know, as I think of this, my initial leaning is always, yeah, they should have covered the cost of this. Just like when people fall into a waterfall here in Hamilton now, and it's like, well, why are we sending the firefighters? You should have to pay. But if you if you went on this submersible, I'm willing to bet you that none of the people who went down on this went, Oh, I don't think I'm coming back. They all thought it was safe enough that they would risk their life to do it. And so what if a plane what that Malaysian Airlines? We went on a plane. There's a chance your plane goes down. Should the yeah. airline be paying for search and rescue if a plane goes down because they don't think it's going to happen, but it could, it can, it has. And one thing fascinating with air disasters, there's a there's a show I watch. It's disaster porn, which is terrible, but it's <laughs> air disasters. And they do go down, they retrieve all the parts of these planes and they rebuild them. And sometimes it's here in Canada states wherever and the thing is the safety stuff they take away from it and what they learn from it means that far it happens far far less often so things are learned and the airline industry is now safer than ever because they do these yes. really expensive undertakings and it also tells people we we care that you died like people that lose you know, friends and family in disasters, it's absolutely heartbreaking and annihilating to turn around and say to them, oh, you guys aren't worth finding or finding out why they died. That's awful. That's the wrong message. We, yeah. we can't be like that. Yeah. That's wrong. It's just, but, but when they learn stuff. No, no, it, it's, it's just the idea that what is date, what is risky enough that you should yeah. be on the hook. If you, as I say, if you go canoeing in the backwaters, if you go up in Northern Ontario and you're canoeing and you go missing, is that not risky? Well, you wouldn't say 
well, that's the most risky. That's not anywhere close to being in a submarine. Well, until you go missing and we have to send out a thousand people and planes and everything else to find you, then it was pretty darn risky. So I, well, I just don't about, know where you find the line. Well, I think if if we've got teams of people who are trained to anticipate that this could happen, that tells me that they know people could do this. So when you've got search and rescue, whether it's hiking stuff or, you know, up north in water rescue and stuff, and here in the gorge when they do the rope rescues, and I've talked to some of the firefighters that do that stuff as well. So when you've got search and rescue teams that are trained for this very thing, that tells me we know this could happen. And, you know, it's only the really, and this submersible again is a bizarro thing. Like it's it's a total outlier, if you ask me. I really think it's an outlier. So we shouldn't really use it as a barometer of. Well, and know, again, I mean, I don't, I, I don't believe that any of the people on board that thing thought they were not coming back. Otherwise, why would they have done it? So <laughs> they didn't believe yeah. that it was all that risky. Clearly it was, but yeah. you know, it's, I don't yeah. know, it's a fascinating one because I just don't know where the line is. My, my inclination is just like yours to say, well, yeah, you should pay because you took the risk. I just don't know how you determine what is an acceptable level of risk that everyone can agree on. But, you know, that's, well, we're not the ones paying the bills. the difference between a private firm who knowingly goes into a dangerous thing and leads other people there and people who get lost or find themselves in a bad circumstance. I think there's a difference. If you have a private enterprise, there's there's a duty and obligation on their part because they're signing up and leading somebody into this. So I, I think it's a little bit different than a kid that gets lost in a canoe or falls off a cliff. Uh, Lorraine, we learned this week, the story in the spec from uh, Matthew Van Donjen, we learned this week that uh, with all the stuff that the LRT is supposed to be for the city of Hamilton, one of the things it's supposed to do is provide affordable housing. There's supposed to be affordable housing along the way that is supposed to land, that is supposed to be made available and then turned into housing to help with this, which is a real huge situation in our city. Well, we learned this week that the city's hunt for affordable housing on the LRT has so far found no suitable properties. It's a year that they've been looking for this. It has found zero, no suitable properties. Do you start to get the idea ever when you listen to the way this project goes that it's not going to end up the way it was promised that, that it just, it almost seems like every single step along the way, something has gone on here that makes you believe that whatever it ends up being at the end of the thing, it's not exactly going to be what we thought it was going to be. I'm old enough to have seen this play out in every single municipality and city across this country. And honestly, I used to think I was cynical. Now I know what cynicism really is i i don't know where political will is gone and i think we need political will to make things happen and we've gone through probably 20 years now of people just running to get reelected i don't see this is different than what the first 30 years of my life where i saw governments could actually work together even if they kind of hated each other but they understood they work for people and now it's just so polarized and we see this everywhere, not just Canada, it's the US. And I, I see why people are giving up. And how how does anything get done anymore? And when it comes to housing, we need city housing again. We need governments to build housing for people. It's it's people need homes and they shouldn't have to well forget bankrupt themselves. They can even get far enough ahead to declare bankruptcy. So we're doing it wrong. I don't know what the answer is. The LRT project, I mean, I've been hearing this for so long, but it's the same as the uh, which the Scarborough subway or whatever it is yeah. in Toronto. I look at the Ottawa LRT, all this stuff, and I look at places that have done it right, and it's because they've had the the political will to push projects ahead and hand them over to you know subsequent where, governments. That seems to have just gone. Where has it been done right? I, I, and I, I'm, I'm not being facetious. But I'm looking at yeah. like every LRT no. project that I've been able to find has had yeah. huge issues. One where not always the same things, but there's always, and maybe it's just because any kind of project that is in the billions of dollars is going to have warts on it. Maybe that's just the reality and we should expect that. But I can't find the one where you look at it and go, oh, that was great. That worked out exactly as promised. Well, we've had almost a hundred 
100 years, probably 80 years of car-centric city planning. And so transit is a bad word. Nobody wants to address it. And European cities have figured this out because they started out doing it right. But we believe everyone needs a car or two. And those are the people that we build for. And we've got it backwards. We've got it exactly backwards. And nobody wants to, it's the same way nobody will attack seniors because seniors vote. So nobody wants to say anything they don't want to hear. They don't want to attack people that drive cars. And I know I'm writing myself out of a job every week because we're doing it wrong. We're, we're planning for people. We're not planning for everybody. And if we're not planning for everybody, then we're not doing it right. And this is not right. So transit, we get all these garbage transit ideas because nobody will just, they keep kicking the ball down the, you know, down the court, hoping someone else will deal with it. And then it becomes monstrously expensive you know, if they built subways before everything was built on top of it, maybe they could have done it better then. I don't know. But well, we're going to see shouldn't be a dirty. Lorraine, yeah. we're going to see <laughs> gonna... because the, the city has said that it's going to, for example, make Main Street two ways. And there are parts of King Street when the LRT gets built by the International Village where there will be no lanes for traffic. Yep. And we are going to see if the move towards much more public transit and less vehicle works there's two ways this is going to go in the city of hamilton it's either going to be an eye-opening wild success that changes the way we live and the way we get around and we all move on to public transit or it's going to be absolute gridlock and anyone who doesn't live downtown is going to avoid downtown forever and ever amen and we're going to have two cities the outskirts and the downtown well the thing is if you can get from the outskirts to the downtown it will be fine we shouldn't be taking cars downtown in Toronto, like they should be getting rid of that. That's crazy. The way the commuting works, it's not good for anybody, including the people in their cars. And electric cars aren't going to solve this. Taking all the cars on the road and making them electric doesn't solve congestion. So we need better answers. And yes, we people should come first. I'm so tired of pedestrians and cyclists being hit. And don't tell me cyclists are idiots. I don't want to hear it. The most vulnerable road users need to be put first, not the people wearing you know, 3,000 pounds of armor around them and, you know, press a pe pedal and you're, you're, you've weaponized, you know, all this tonnage. So we need to put pedestrians first. We need to put people ahead that maybe don't want to drive a car or can't afford to. Why are they always on the tag end of everything? It's wrong. And mobility issues as we age, all of us probably have parents or grandparents or neighbors who can't drive anymore. And a lot of them keep driving. Wouldn't it be great if they had a better option? I think it would be. Uh, maybe, maybe, although, I mean, the, the way the city is built and we can't undo what's done the way the city is built. If you live in Flamborough, Dundas, Stony Creek, Waterdown, Ancaster, the way public transit is right now, you pretty much have to carve out your day if you want to get downtown. And until that changes dramatically, um, nothing is going to change. I don't think, I don't well, this think is this is. That's where the concept of 15-minute cities, it's not a conspiracy theory, people. It's been around forever of, if you like, hubs or villages. Like If you could access all the things you need within 15 minutes of where you live, that would be ideal for the planet, for the people, for the communities. We shouldn't be driving hours and hours all over the place you know, to get to a doctor's appointment or something. So the idea of, a, of a, an accessible hub and then when you go too far out, then you build another one. And it's every single town from going back since people have been on the planet has been built this way. Now, again, we're so polarized politically that nobody can say, wouldn't it be great if you could just go down and do your shopping and walk around, like find everything within 15 minutes of your house and places were originally built that way, but cars freed us to do everything we want and become incredibly selfish. And I know people need cars for different reasons. I know the food comes here because of trucks. I get all that. But I just think more people could be engaged and involved if they weren't relying on this expensive, incredibly expensive piece of machinery that costs a fortune to run. I just, uh, to go back to where this whole thing started, as far as housing and affordable housing, one of the things you know, you're talking about, housing, where your house is, I just don't understand how it is that, like the, the LRT route has been the route from the beginning, basically, I know it got, you know, talk, but for, for a long time, we've known what the route is going to be. How is it that at this point, we still haven't figured out if there's going to be any housing along the way that that should have been 
one of the very first things that was sorted out, shouldn't it? I, I, I just, I can't understand how we're at this point now and we're shrugging our shoulders and, and looking blankly like we're not really sure what we're doing. This, this should have been the very first, you knew where this was going to be. I don't get it. I, I think people are pretty apathetic when it comes to voting at a municipal level. I think people are now understanding there's three levels of government. We're getting better at figuring that out. But what most people care about the most is the municipal stuff, garbage cans and you know barking dogs and transit. And they don't bother voting. And when they do, we're not demanding enough of the people we put in office. I think we've lost sight of what politicians are supposed to do, which is serve the public. That's supposed to be what they're doing. And I'm watching everywhere. I, I don't live in Hamilton, but I watch everywhere. And I just scratch my head. It, it's like nothing, nothing seems to move the needle anymore. And I don't know what the answer is. I keep saying that repeatedly. I'm useless. But we just, as a collective, we're not acting very collectively mm. at all. It's every man for himself. We were just talking about LRT and homes and things like that, Larry. Let, let's let's stay on the third rail, as it were. The the hot button issue right now in Hamilton politics, and I don't think there's anything getting around it. It's the encampment thing, but I want to whittle it down to one thing. If you are not excited about having an encampment in a park next to your house or across the street from your house or just down the street from your house, if you're not really wanting that are you being a nimby or are you being just a responsible homeowner you're not being a nimby um this is not and again i keep saying this it's happening everywhere which means it's a global problem it's going to get worse we need some will to change this i think i i understand i don't want i've got two kids that live in hamilton this is an issue um i've got a daughter-in-law she can't she's scared to go out because the root problems of this are not just people living in tents. It's not people camping. That's not what it's about. We're talking about an absolutely broken system where people who need help aren't getting it. And it does impact everyone else. And I think human nature is until it impacts you personally, you can kind of pretend it's not there. We're past that point. We can't pretend it's not there. And I, I read stuff and you won't like this because I always do this too. You ask me something and I don't have an answer. So I throw something else out there. I'm just reading yesterday about that the world's biggest cruise ship that they're going to launch in January, mm -hmm. 250,000 ton. It looks like a big grenade stuck up its butt. The thing is absolutely, it's like Disney World on a ship. And I'm thinking, how do we have these two things existing side by side in our news? How do we have these such disparate things every day? And is it is it a wonder that we're, we're numb? Like, I think we're just the overload on both ends of the spectrum, you have to, I don't know, I I don't know what to do with it. And I, I have to read and know, but I absolutely understand people being too overwhelmed to know what to do with this information. It's obscene, all of it. Yeah. And, and you know, we hear this a lot, uh, directly or indirectly that, you know, if you're not, if you have a problem with an encampment, nobody wants them, but if you say, I don't want it right next to me, you're an elitist or you're what and and i i've heard this a few times from people and it's a it's a it's a a balancing act because i don't think i, I agree with you i don't think you're being a nimby if you say i don't want this next to me I, I think the reality is that i don't think we should want them period although they are a reality right now and we got to deal with that but i don't think i think it's unhelpful to tell someone who has put the biggest expense of their life into trying to have their own home and say, you shouldn't care about what happens around you. You shouldn't be worried about that stuff. There are other issues. I, I think that's just. That's, are people saying that? I, I've heard a number of times. I, I would never say that to somebody. I, I've heard I a number can't of times imagine. You're, well, you're, you're wrong. If you're, like, yeah, that's exactly it though. You, they get over it. I mean, they've got to no, be somewhere. See, I, yeah. And, I mean, but you're right. They no, they shouldn't. They, they should, people, human beings shouldn't be living in tents because that's all they have. That's we're better than this. We're one of the richest nations in the world. So again, this is obscene. But to tell homeowners get over it, that tells me it's not you. That's all that tells me is that it's not you're not next to the park where this is happening. So no, absolutely, the concern is real. 
And, but I think it's concern. I have concern for both sides of this equation. And yeah, it's not, I don't live beside a park. If they come, if people come here and put up a tent in my backyard, then yeah, I'm going to, you know, get a little bit bent out of shape about that or, or have something more to say about it. So I think being dismissive is just rude. Of course, this is a real problem. It's an absolute problem. We have to understand this problem impacts all of us, not just the people living beside a damn park. A hundred percent. And it's, this is not a question of, do we lack empathy for the people in the tents or, and some people do, I don't doubt, but I think most people have great sympathy for those who are in this position, but I don't know that this, that, that sympathy and um, being totally okay with anything goes are the same things. Absolutely not. No, they're not, they're not the same thing at all. It's what's the solution. Who are we supposed to be looking to for solutions? And again, I look at the people we elect. And what are they going to do? Consult some more people about this? This is not a new problem. It's a rapidly growing problem all, all over the place. What's anyone else doing? When I see in Toronto, when they bring the cops through and bulldozers, that's vile. Like It's just vile. But I think people do lose empathy. If you can't identify with somebody, it's easier to marginalize them. And that's wrong. We've got a broken system. What are we supposed to do? Nobody wants, I, I live a few blocks up from the lakeshore, which sounds a lot posher than it is. Hmm. And when I was a kid, there's one of the huge houses they sold for a halfway house. And I remember everyone was up in arms a few blocks from me. It was there for 25 years. No one knew anything. No one cared. Like it, it wasn't an issue. So that was a thing going on back then. I was a kid and yeah, you want to defend your property values, for lack of a better term. But I think we are all dialed up to 11. Everybody is spun so tight that we are losing sociability, like we were talking at the top of the hour. But we're losing a connection to other people. And that terrifies me. I watch this world breaking apart. And that really does scare me. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, it's such a tough one because th there are people, and I, I, as I say, I've heard it, who I think almost come across as well. If you own a home and you don't want this next to you, you're being elitist. I, I as I say, I, I vigorously disagree with that because I think that's totally unfair. Yeah, but equally unfair to nonsense. say, but equally unfair to say, oh, I don't care about these people. Because it 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 goes yeah, both I, ways. I don't think you can have just one argument or the other. I think both no. are true. And I I really don't believe um, homeowners who are impacted by this. I don't think it's a, that they don't care about these people. I mean, if they've had some rough brushings, like again, we're talking about mental health issues. We're talking about addiction issues. You have to talk about all these things in the same sentence. And pe there's a lot of leaders. I'm doing air quotes who try and separate that out. And you can't, you can't. And people that work on the ground, they know you can't separate this out. You need mental health supports, you need medical supports, you need, you know, addiction counsel. You need all these things because why just keep lopping off symptoms if you're not going to get to the root causes? And I think what's scary for people is as long as you can put some space between this and yourself, you kind of feel like a buffer. But what if it's your kid? What if it becomes someone you care about? And we're all one step away from that, whether we want to admit it or not you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml in a few days actually uh less than a week july the 20th thursday july 20 at a different drummer books she is going to be introducing her debut novel a face in the window you are a published author i mean you were always a published author a published book author now that's kind of cool i have an isbn number i'm so excited that is kind of cool I wanted it since I was a little kid. I was the dorkiest kid on the planet. <laughs> what is the ISPN number? I mean, I know what they are, but what is yours? It's your, oh, it's like a 16 digit number. Oh, okay. You haven't oh, memorized well, it. Just about. I'm getting a t-shirt made, actually. I used to work are at you? the library and order books. You have to order it with an ISPN. I just love the whole idea. I, sorry, folks. I'm a dork. I'm an absolute dork. When does the tattoo with that number get put on the arm? Oh, that's a thought. <laughs> okay. And then if you like, if you do it, well, e either way, horizontal or vertical, you see adding to it each time you do a new one. Yeah. You can just, have your whole library on your arm. That would be, yeah. I love that you think there might be more than one. That'd be great. 
<laughs> well, we'll see. But this one, okay, so A Face in the Window is the name of the book. Yeah. And I know last time you and I talked, which was months ago, I can't remember where it was in the process. I can't remember if you had finished writing or it was being edited or whatever. Uh, it's obviously ready to go now, but tell, give us the what you're able to say without spoiler alerts here. Uh, tell us about this book. Oh, it's a thriller, Escaped Killers, and they're in the cottage country. It's the Finger Lakes region of Upper New York State, but it's actually my cottage here near Perry Sound. Um, it's the you know the chase. The cops are chasing the bad guys. There's a woman alone in her cottage with her little kid, and the bad guy's coming for her. So it moves really quick. It's a great summer read. It's fun. And Does it involve a hook? Does it involve a hand hook on the door <laughs> of the car? Because I thought no. all summer camp, winter or woods killer hunted things have to have the hook on the car. No, here, here's the funny thing. Um, people always say, where, you know, where'd the idea come from? And my son, who's 31, when he was eight months old, I was up at the cottage with him on my own. I used to go up all the time on my own. And I watched the X-Files on a Friday night. Remember how scary that show nice used move. to be when yep, it first nice came move. out? Yeah. So I'm on my own. The kid's you know, sleeping in the little crib thing. And then the news came on and it said two people had escaped. Two killers had escaped. And I, it might have been an American one. I don't know because I can't find it on Google now if it was Penetang or Millhaven. I don't know or Kingston. Anyway, I stayed up all night terrified because we're in the middle of the forest. And all I could think is, how do I protect my kid? What would I do if these people showed up at my cottage? I was absolutely vulnerable. And that sat in my brain for 30 years <laughs> because I thought a thriller is always based on someone's fear. It's about fear mm -hmm. and adrenaline. And that was my scariest night ever. And, and is the... Was the was the conclusion that you reached that night when you came up with what would you do? <laughs> was that what got written in the book, or did you have to sort of go through and go, "Oh no, I got to come up with something else"? Oh no, I mean it had to change because it didn't happen, and in the book it does happen. But um, no, oh yeah, it, being a parent changed everything because the way you would react in that situation everything is flipped on its head when you have to protect someone who can't protect themselves. And it just changed my whole thinking in that one night, all my thinking about how vulnerable I could be or how I would protect myself, everything turned on a dime and it was because I had a baby. And so that just changed my thinking for my whole life. As you know, you've got kids. As soon mm -hmm. as that enters the equation, it pivots. Everything just changes how you approach your fears and anxieties and everything else. So, Well, I'm, I'm going to read it. Uh, but I'm not going to read it in the next week because we're going to be up at the cottage. And just reading this, it says, debut novel, A Face the Window Out, summer of 2023. You'll never feel safe at a cottage again. I might wait until I'm home. Uh, you know, I'm at a certain age when I probably shouldn't be scared of the dark, but I don't need to, you know, create some doubt. Just anytime you go, because the thing about the cottage and anyone who's ever been to one, whether they rent it or own it, we rent one, but whether we rent or own or whatever else, there is a different level of black because there's no street lights and no yeah. city lights and <laughs> and bumps in the night at a cottage are much louder even though they're the oh, same yeah. volume much oh, louder yeah. yeah no everything and you realize how remote you are if you yes. can't see any other cottages and i mean as my kids got older the fear was i have to get them into the er because boys are boys and you can't call for an ambulance or a fire like you have to load them into whatever you're driving and take them into town and so you have to be a lot more self-reliant. And we've known that. We've had our cottage for 51 years. It's a little, you know, mouse poo and splinter box. It's great. But yeah, no, you you can't just run out and get something. You have to plan. And so if something goes in the night, even a raccoon is very noisy on the mm -hmm. other side of the wall. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no. So many years ago, this is not a cottage thing, but it's the same idea. Many years ago, I was, uh, I spent a couple summers doing volunteer work overseas and we had a uh, like a training thing beforehand down in Florida. And we heard someone crawling by our tent Ooh. and we thought somebody was like leaving. And so we unzipped the tent and the person in the tent who was with me, one of the leaders jumped on the person um, to stop them. And it was either an aardvark or a giant possum. I can't remember. Oh. And then all of us, cause you can't see a thing. <laughs> and then the screaming starts yep. and now it's complete chaos because now you got people waking up going, what's going on. And he's oh. scared and the animals taking off and screaming <laughs> and anything in the dark away from civilization is infinitely more scary. Infinitely. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to read it. A face in the window. So again, next <laughs> Thursday, admission is free uh, at a different drummer books uh, in Burlington. They can go and, uh, they go and get a you, copy of this. They ask that you register, but you can buy it online on the 18th. It drops on the 18th. So oh, Tuesday. excellent. All right. So you can, so people can have Amazon. it for, uh, on Amazon. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, a face in the window. So uh, keep a look for that. And, and if, I mean, assuming this goes well, and I'm assuming it will, have you got, because to me, the idea, I've never written a book. And the reason why I've never written a book, besides the fact that I simply don't have any time, is that I've always thought the hardest part of writing a book is coming up with the initial idea. You've had it for 30 years sitting on it. Have you got the next one, the next nugget in your brain that you could dive into? Yeah, I'm noodling the next one around because you pick something that someone, what's the big vulnerability? What, what's the scary thing that you don't want to face? And that was, that was one, you know, be alone up north. And now I'm working on the next one. There's a, I mean, that one took me years to write because like you, I write all the time and you can only write so much. So getting that one finished was an epic accomplishment for me. I, you know, you have to steal an hour here and there, mm-hmm. and, you know, it takes forever and it's hard. It's very hard to finish a book. I have two that I haven't finished. They're sitting there. <laughs> yeah. I just, as I say, and, and for me, you know, the thing I'm thinking, okay, I'd come up with something terrifying that would have would scare me. I don't know that anyone wants to read a book about eating tofu. Uh, uh, you know, that's just not good. There's, there's not enough terror in yeah. that <laughs> or kale. Uh, no, yeah. it, it, that to me, honestly, that has always been the hardest part. I, when I read, you know, I'll, I'll read like a John Grisham book or something and, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's light fair. You're not doing it to yep. expand your brain power too much. But all, the thing that always blows me away is where did the idea come from? I, I don't, I'm not suggesting for a second that I could write at the way that John Grisham writes. He's, you know, he's made millions and millions of dollars because of what he does, but you've got to have the idea. And that to me is by far the hardest part. Yeah, that's making sure there's no loose ends, because if a writer says something, there better be a reason that that's been introduced. That's the hard part is polishing it up and getting rid of every single loose end so the reader's not left hanging, mm. because that is just really irritating. <laughs> Are you the yellow sticky note writer? When you're doing a book, do you have to have a note every time? Okay, I've introduced the character. I've introduced Bob, so I can't forget. Oh, so I got to have Bob. So, Oh, yeah. 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 No, I had a big spreadsheet and everything was on it because- you have to know what the weather is and the terrain and the time of year and the temperature and where you left a character. He, they can't all, all of a sudden show up 20 kilometers away <laughs> and you haven't explained how they got there. So there's a lot of little tiny things that took a long time to iron out. I admit it's, you know, doing my day job and then trying to get this into shape. When does the movie well. come but out? I mean, it, it's fun. Oh, I wish that would be hilarious. That'd be great. I had to apologize to my sisters for wrecking the cottage for them and the acknowledgements. <laughs> <laughs> Because they'll read and they'll never want to go back. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's uh, uh, that'll happen if if it's a if it's a really good read that'll happen. So you know, <laughs> there you go. Uh, once again, a face in the window, and you can uh, you can find it from Lorraine Summerfield. Okay, so those who don't know Lorraine, and I don't know who that would be. I assume everybody knows Lorraine or knows of Lorraine. Uh, knows that among other things, you write the mother load column, which is you know sort of everyday life. You also are an automotive writer, so you know your way around cars. And fascinating story that uh, Reuters uh, wrote about this week about the electric vehicle market in the States. Now, I, I don't, they didn't write about Canada specifically, Lorraine, so I don't know what the comparisons are. I don't see any great reason why we should be substantially different from the States in this particular story. But what they're pointing at is analysts are being concerned here because what they're saying is automakers are rushing to put out all kinds of electric vehicles because that apparently is the wave of the future. Uh, There are more than 90 new models expected in the U.S. market by 2026. Mm -hmm. But what they're finding is they can't sell these things. They've got way more inventory now than they usually would with regular cars. And I'm wondering why you think that is. What is the hesitancy people might have towards electric vehicles at this point. If that's there is stockpiling. One. Yeah, the over-inventory, that's a U.S. thing. That's not a Canadian thing. And it's a direct fallout of Biden um, introduced his uh, Inflation Fighting Act. I forget exactly. It's called, called something else. Anyway, okay. and he, he offered huge rebates on a whole big, you know, vast array of electric cars. And now they have started to pare down 
which cars are actually eligible. And they can't have, um, they have to have a certain number of components that are North American sourced or friendly country sourced, which knocks out Hyundai and Kia because they're South Korean and they're not, most of them aren't built here. And so what's happened is that glut sitting there is because people can't access the rebates that they were anticipating because they're changing, they're moving the goalposts a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they're stocking, you know, the stock is growing and the electric car industry, it's changing every week. I could be telling you something different, but we don't have a glut of them sitting there. People are waiting a year and two years to get their hands on these vehicles in Canada and especially in BC and Quebec where the rebates are the most robust, um, and parts of the Maritimes, not Ontario. So getting our hands on them, we, we've got the opposite problem. Uh, the U.S. is sitting; they're sitting there because they're very expensive, and the rebates they thought were coming, mm. they they throttled it. All right. Do you believe that? I love that you throw in throttle there as part of the uh, discussion. That's a good word. Uh, do, do you believe that these things will sell without rebates? Because ultimately, governments are going to have to either continue to forever offer these, or eventually the market is going to have to look after itself. Can it, can electric vehicles catch the the market without giant rebates? Yeah, I think the only one there already is Volvo. Um, either this year or next year, they've hit the parity point between ICE and EVs. Sorry, internal combustion engines mm-hmm. and EVs. So the the gap is narrowing. Uh, 10 years ago, we said it would be, you know, five years. And then five years ago, we said it would be, you know, another three or four years. So we're always wrong. That's the thing you need to understand from car analysts. Mostly we're wrong. COVID changed everything. The shortages have changed everything. Um, The war going on has changed everything because a lot of the materials needed for these vehicles come from very, very unstable geopolitical places, China, parts of Africa, Russia. So you can imagine how that equation is changing all the time. So manufacturers can't get their hands on a steady supply of things that they have to have. The other part of this, though, is those components are changing as well as technology moves ahead. And so manufacturers are putting every nickel they have into it and it's changing. They're building this thing as they're flying it, which to me gives me a little hesitation. Um, But thinking this is the answer to everything, they've gone all in on it, but we have to keep finding new ways to do things better. These batteries are massive. They're so heavy. I'm terrified for vulnerable road users, again, pedestrians, because because that vehicle coming at you, that electric Hummer weighs 9,000 pounds. Mm. And that Lightning, the F-150, is 2,500 pounds heavier than a normal, sorry, F-150. So the weight of these vehicles is, it's going to put pressure on our roads. It's going to be more dangerous for other road users. So there's lots of parts of this equation that we're not really talking about. And nobody really wants to. <laughs> well, and the, the other thing that, and there's a lot of other things. When I say the other thing, there's not one other thing. An other thing that really I wonder about is when the day comes, assuming it does, uh, as governments are pushing us toward where everybody or almost everybody is driving electric vehicles, <laughs> do we have the infrastructure even for the charging, even for along right now? I mean, you can pull into one of those, so what do you call the stores on the, um on the highways um on routes routes. yeah you could pull in there and you might find five or six charging stations but eventually you're going to need to have way more than that at all of them (laughs) and you're going to have to expand them all over the country because (laughs) you know you can't just expect you're going to run out when it's convenient for you and i don't know it, it it seems to me like there's all kinds of other parts of the infrastructure here that we're not quite ready yet for yet we're trying to move this forward which you know maybe that makes sense maybe you move it forward and then we build the infrastructure but boy we better be willing to build it well i think what we have to get comfortable with which i never will (laughs) and i don't think a lot of people will is again everything is changing all the time and so when when you pull up your car and you gas it up with gas with fuel it takes you what seven minutes or something six minutes okay so the charging might take an hour or 40 minutes well that charging time is coming down that's the next rush for manufacturers they've gotten over the range anxiety these things have a ton of range nobody needs 500 kilometers a day very few people most people that have an electric car have a charging station in their home so it's like starting out every day with a full tank of fuel so not everyone is going to be trying to charge up you know every time they leave the house 
but Tesla just cut a deal with I think Volvo that they're gonna you know share they're gonna share the t- Tesla has the best system. It's the only nice thing I'm ever gonna say about Tesla. Hmm. Um, they have the best charging system, but they're making it they're making deals to make it accessible to other manufacturers, which is a good thing. But again, if you get the charging time down, then that takes away the problem of a lineup of people waiting, you know, or having to go off and have lunch and then come back. So a lot of these, this issue, the parts, all these parts are moving all the time. And that's why it's really hard to nail down a date or a time or an answer, because a lot of things are changing as we go. Yeah. And they remain pretty expensive. I mean, I have not gone shopping for one. Um, But I mean, there's a lot of things we're just, even as we're talking about this, there's a bunch of things that have to continue moving in the right direction. I assume it will. It, it will, and you have to. I mean, think about cars for a second. Just normal cars. The 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 average cost of a new car in Canada, as of I think three months ago, was almost sixty one thousand dollars. Come on, the average cost. Not kidding, because people are buying these great big huge SUVs. People are buying Yukons and Navigators, and they're buying huge vehicles. And what used to be huge in our day is now considered compact. For crying out loud, like it's All crazy. Right. So when you so, say the average cost, oh, that, that's, yeah. those things are driving up the average because that's how averages work. But you can yeah. still get a car for way less than that in this country. Yes, I haven't bought a can. new car lately, but yeah, you can still get, it's still reasonable that you can get one for much less. Can you get an electric car for way less? Um, I think the entry point would be the bolt that they just continued or discontinued. Um, 40, that's 35 not cheap. or 40. No, it's not. not. I drive a little hatchback. I drive a cheap little hatchback. But most people, what I'm what I'm kind of trying to nail down here is that people are getting used to paying fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars for a vehicle. And all they're doing is remember we used to if you took a loan out for five years, I'm sorry, Dad, I'm so sorry. because uh, he just put, you know, he'd save it up and buy cash. I would take out a five year loan. People have been taking out eight, nine, ten year loans now for over a decade. It's normal. And dealers are normalizing that and they're, you know, massaging people into that. You shouldn't be paying for a new car for nine or 10 years unless you get it at zero financing, but even then your warranty's gone. So we just got used to the idea of a big chunk of a monthly budget going to a new car and every four years or so get another one or lease them. We've been treating cars like disposable things, which is obscene. I've used that word three times tonight. It's wrong. But that is what we want big, we want fast, we want all the entertainment systems, we want all the stuff. We're right to want the safety stuff. We're stupid to want all the rest of that. The, okay, so here's here's a trick that is, even as I'm listening to you, though. So we, we want people to get into electric vehicles, clearly, mm-hmm. because we've just spent how many, uh, $25 billion, something like that, between oh, yeah. the Stellantis and the VW. So we've put <laughs> billions, $6 million a job is essentially what mm-hmm. governments have paid for this. So we clearly want people to buy electric vehicles, but they cost a lot of money, which mm-hmm. means people are going to be probably, some of them, less likely. So we then are going to be pushing people to public transit, which in its on its own is a good thing again, but then all of these electric vehicles that we apparently need people to buy to make the government spending worthwhile, not so much. It like it, it's it's really hard to figure unless the price really comes down for the electric vehicles, but, and especially you, if you know are are these things are we, are electric vehicles popping up in used car lots yet? Oh yeah, they yeah, are. Yeah, they are. Yeah, and we we need manufacturers to keep servicing the platforms even as they phase out of them because we're seeing turnover and some manufacturers making EVs right now that you've probably never heard of them. A lot of them you're not going to hear of them again in a few years. Like it'll shake out, the industry will shake out. But the whole idea of more environmentally friendly vehicles should have always meant smaller vehicles. EVs should be small vehicles that you you. Buy the least amount of car that you need, and it does the most for you. Instead, North Americans want they're electrifying our biggest vehicles because that's what people that's the demand. And I can get in a big fight with manufacturers about, you know, if you build it, they will come. They say, Oh, it's what people want. It's like you're telling them they want it and need it. And we're driving living rooms on wheels. And in North America, we're electrifying them. The rest of the world thinks we're insane. So, Lorraine, we were talking yesterday on the show. Well, yeah, because yesterday was the anniversary of Live Aid. Uh, and the day before that, actually, I was talking with Eric Alper on the show. And, uh, it came up that 
when Live Aid happened, the old folks on Live Aid were the Beach Boys, were mm-hmm. Paul McCartney, were uh, I think BB King may have played uh, Mick Jagger. They were maybe in their late thirties, early forties, and they were considered ancient in the world of mm-hmm. pop music, rock music, whatever. Uh, this week, Elton John said that it was his final performance. We will see. Uh, he is 76. Mick Jagger and the Stones are still going. He's 79. Paul McCartney is 81 and is just announced a new concert tour. What's changed? What do you think has changed in the world of pop culture, pop music, whatever, that not just that people would continue to play because i get why you know with money and ego and everything else i get why you might want to continue doing it but i'm kind of surprised that the audience still looks at someone who's 80 years old as a well quite frankly i know there might be some 80 year olds listening so forgive me but (laughs) as a really cool rock star i I, it, it surprises me but you figure this is the peer group and these are boomers and they have money and i believe these artists will play as long as they have an audience and yes, money has ego, but there's also an audience and this chunk of the audience grew up with them. And I know my boyfriend, we have two turntables in the house and there's five kids between us. They're all set up with kits and we go to use record stores and we buy them the essential vinyl that they need to have. And they're across the country, all these kids. And so we're bringing that music to them. I mean, Willie Nelson and Fleetwood Mac, like all this stuff that we're buying the kids. So another generation is getting turned on to the music. And yes, they give us their stuff and, you know, that's fine. And we have Taylor Swift booming away once in a while. But I think if you grew up with the Beach Boys and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and you're, you still like music, that's what you're playing. And you've got the money to keep buying the stuff. And everyone, I see this lurch back to vinyl and getting rid of the CD. So they're playing to the people that have the wallets. And as long as we're alive, that music's going to stay alive. I think it's kind of wild. We listen to a lot of Miles Davis too. So who knows? <laughs> yeah. I, and and like your, your point, you make a very good point and it makes all the sense in the world that, okay, this is who I loved when I was a kid. And, and uh, you know, yesterday we were talking on the show about what's the best concert you've ever been to. And somebody pointed out Paul McCartney at cops Coliseum in 2016. I think it was still cops then or first Ontario. I don't know, but anyway, um, and and I was there and yeah, that was, he was 75 then and 73 yeah. and it was fantastic. I loved it. It was a great night. And I didn't think, oh, Paul McCartney is just the old guy now. I, that didn't dawn on me, but they are now at the point when you're looking, you cannot watch Mick Jagger on stage and not think careful, dude, you're going to bust a hip. You're at that oh. age. He but looks like, old. They well, look yeah. old. He looks like an Apple doll, but you got to remember these people have all the money in the world. It, Explain Keith Richards to me, who I adore. He's so funny. But he must be getting blood transfusions from virgins. Like, I don't know how that guy is still alive. (laughs) I have no idea. But he's in a class all on his own. And I mean, you see the t-shirts and the memes about, you know, what are we going to, what kind of world are we going to leave Keith? (laughs) Yes. But Mick Jagger, but the way Paul McCartney is the same age as Joe Biden. And if you yeah. watch Joe Biden, the other day they had a you know video of him on the beach, and yeah. he was moving at the pace of a man who looked like he was one stiff breeze away from dying. And like he's just he's old. And Paul McCartney's out on stage still playing. And good for him. I mean, it's fantastic that it's keeping them youthful and and everything else. I just it's amazing to me to think that in the span of from 1985 until now, what music was and who music who played music and who performed and who we watch has changed that much. Well, I think the music, they're all playing stuff because we want to hear the stuff we're familiar with. And so McCartney is going to play stuff that, you know, he wrote 50 years ago or more. And someone like a politician, they have to keep pivoting and changing every 10 minutes. So yeah, that's going to age them a little differently than going out there and doing what they love doing every day. I don't think Biden loves, you know, what he does, but for a musician, they they pull energy from that crowd and from recording. Oh, there's no was, question it's an elixir. Yeah, there's no question. A lot, but a lot of jobs suck that energy out of you. So I think they've got it dialed in just right. I, I think more power to them, and I see why it keeps them going. It's a lifeblood. 
Yeah, I, I, again, a generation I, of well-preserved people. <laughs> well, and I was watching. There, there is a fantastic. If anyone has the time and is inclined to do this, if you watched Live Aid back in the day, or if you're interested in it, there is a BBC documentary that's on YouTube called "Against All Odds," and it's the story of Live Aid. It's amazing. It is amazing. It's the story of how it got put together and then the concert itself. But again, you're watching all the performers. And they are all young because rock music, pop music was a young person's game. Yeah. And it has clear, not, not entirely. I mean, Taylor Swift is out there and lots of other younger people, Drake and everyone. I mean, there's, it's not like they're all old, but it's like, it's the one job where there never is a retirement age. Nobody, yeah. no, who has ever retired. And even when they say, oh, it's my last one. I don't believe Elton John for a second or share or the who or whomever they they're never retired but isn't that all artists if you paint if you write if you create music you do it till the day you die there isn't a retirement because even if you're screwing it all up you still make paintings <laughs> you still write stuff so i just think it's a blessed thing to be able to do and find a way to support yourself doing it. It's like super cool. You know, yeah. everyone would love their well, hobby to pay them. <laughs> which makes Billy Joel so interesting because Billy Joel probably about 30 years ago or 25 years ago, whatever it was, decided, yeah, I'm still going to play, but I am done writing. I have no yeah. interest. And he said this, I, he has no interest in writing any more songs. He's done good writing. People yeah. like his old stuff. So I, that, and you think, oh, the artist has this need that I must always be creating new stuff. No, he's just fine to, you know, once a month play at Madison Square Garden to make a couple million bucks and have exactly. the joy of the crowd. And that's it. He's got a catalog where he goes. No, I, I think it's amazing. It, it's, it's great. And I see some of the newer ones coming in, like the Taylor Swift has got it dialed in, getting her own music back. Mm. you know that other producers owned and stuff so when i see smart business people in the industry i like to see that as well because there's a lot that get taken advantage of but these old rockers off you go rod stewart he sounds like he swallowed a toad that dude can't sing anymore but he's doing it <laughs> when I, I i mentioned on this week when we were talking music i mentioned that i had seen meatloaf uh once upon a time near the end of his career sadly he's gone now but um meatloaf was a great show he could only hit three notes yep. by the time he came to Hamilton. There were he, Paradise by the Dashboard Lights was more of a rap than it was yeah. a song because he could not hit a note to save his life, but it was still like, okay, well, it's Meatloaf. It's the Loaf. It's Mr. It's Loaf. It's a show. Yep. It's a show. Uh, yeah. You mentioned Taylor Swift. I keep going back to stuff we've talked about this week mm -hmm. on the show, but uh, Taylor Swift, there was an announcement or a report this week that this concert tour that she's on right now probably over the course of this year is going to pay her give or take 300 million dollars now yep. why is it and i asked this earlier why is it that there are people who are going to be sitting in the audience eager to pay 250 bucks 300 bucks to go see taylor swift and eager for her to make all the money she possibly can <laughs> who are fine with taylor swift making 300 million dollars but if you mention to them that a CEO of a company is going to make $20 million this year, they lose their mind and say, that's outrageous. What is the difference? Oh, because that that is totally whacked and out of line. And we've, we've had this talk about sports figures that make like the baseball players and they sign contracts for $90 million and they think, oh, that's crazy. I'd rather give it to people who are performing and doing that because so much to the corporate world is a corrupt, twisted mess. I'm sorry. It's gotten so out of whack and out of line. And I look at Amazon, what they do to their workers, and they won't let them unionize. Like, no, those corporate overlords, I have a bigger problem with that. If Taylor Swift can put her own stuff together, and she does, and all these people are working this hard to if they're athletes, they have, you know, their machine is their body, they have to take care of it. You know, if they're artists, they have to keep, you know, on top of everything and create and perform form can you imagine going out every night and performing for hours every night i can't imagine having to do that no matter how i felt so yeah i have a big problem with those corporate people too i don't like them there's too much corruption and crap well and the people on the wrong end of the line are suffering in those warehouses and it's nonsense i don't like it <laughs> you know i and it'd be really interesting to know what the people who are setting up the stage for taylor swift or others are making like i just I, they're I, union they're all well, union yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess. They I, are. If you're a if you're a company person, if you're a businessman, if you're a businesswoman, if you're a CEO and you're making millions for your shareholders, I I 
I don't know. I guess you've done the same job that you're supposed to be doing. And so you're rewarded. It, it just, it's, it's funny to me and not funny, ha ha funny, ironic that, you know, I remember back in the uh, Occupy Wall Street um, thing. What was that? 15 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And people were enraged at this very thing. Oh, I can't stand the business view. These companies that are making trillions and billions of dollars and they're sending out the texts on their iPhone. And it's like, do you not see the irony here that you're using the very device and love the thing that you say you hate that they make money on? It's But it's look where this is one. creeping towards though. The, the car manufacturing industry just had a big thing where child labor is being used in parts of the US as well uh-huh. as other countries. So we're seeing this slide back to what everything we got pulled out of from the turn of the century robber barons in the early 19, you know, 1905 and 1904 with DuPont, Rockefeller, all these people where kids, five-year-olds were on the shop floor and dying. And if people died, they just got more. We're moving so far away from that, that workers have no rights left anymore. And my father worked at DeFasco. And every time Stelco, Stelco had the strong union, not DeFasco, but he died with his lungs full of asbestos because in the 50s when he started, there was no worker protections. Are we really okay to hand all that back? So yeah. some goof at the no. top can make 30 million? No. No. And, and, and workers. And, and, and Lorraine, and it's, you know, your point, I, I, I don't dispute, I don't take issue with your point. I just, as I say, I just find it funny that we're okay with Taylor Swift at 300 million and, and eager to put more money in, can't do it fast enough. And that's cool. But anyway, it's, 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 but we it's have a choice to go see Taylor Swift. We, we don't do. have a choice about medicine that we need. So there's fair, fair point. Fair a point. difference there for me. Lorraine Sommerfeld, uh, go get her book. Tell us about your book one more time so people know where and when and what it's called and all the rest. A Face in the Window. It's on Amazon.ca, available July 18th. But Graham Rockingham is doing a review next week, so you might want to wait for that. All right, there you go. Uh, Lorraine, love having you on here. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.